In the heat of the moment, you keep it calm and cool with a $3 medium ice cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor. With a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew. Now $3 along with all medium cold brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. At Jiffy Lube, it's our job to make car care make sense. With personalized service reviews that swap the car talk for straight talk. So you know what your car is telling you and what to do about it. Putting you in the driver's seat of car care? That's a job for Jiffy. The levels are set. The mics are ready. Testing, testing, one, two, three. So strap yourself in. It's time to go one-on-one with Bill Alexander. Let's go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this edition, actually the first edition of One-on-One with Bill Alexander. Now, you're going to ask me, why did we change the name of the program? And I will tell you because I thought it was time for a change. We've been doing the same program format for 20 years. And I figured it's 2021. Let's do something a little bit different. So luckily, my first guest has been willing to join me. And we are going to be talking about a very famous Hollywood family. Now, some of you that are under the age of, say, 40 may not be familiar with this name. But trust me, when you're done listening to this program, you're going to want to look these people up because this this is one of those families that is deeply rooted into Hollywood. And on the phone right now, I have Cindy Asbill. And Cindy is the daughter of John Mitchum and the niece of Robert Mitchum. Cindy, how are you doing today? I'm just delighted, and I'm so thrilled that I'm the first one on your new program. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you could be here. It has been one of those one of those days, and as some of you saw online today, I had to put a cat down after 21 years, um, longest I've ever had a cat. But we made it through, and everything's good. And, and I didn't want to cancel this interview because I was so looking forward to be able to talk to you about your famous family and your dad. John, so give me a little background about the book that you are uh, are working on and and what you are are doing, because the book is called Them Ornery Mitchum Boys, correct? Correct. But it's a that's a memoir that my dad wrote. I kind of refer to it as the family Bible, because it's not just your dry memoir of what happened on Thursday and December 12th in 1932. Okay. It's it's a but it's also not a Hollywood kiss and tell. My father was very careful not to put anything in there that could hurt or harm or embarrass anybody. So it's been said that it's basically a love story between two brothers who depended on each other to for survival. My biological grandfather was killed before my father was born in a tragic train accident. 
So my little Norwegian immigrant grandmother in 1919, yesterday would have been my dad's 102nd birthday. So there she was 102 years ago with three small children, a newborn and no husband and raising the boys and their episodes and going through the depression and how they ended up in Long Beach and how they were both very unexpectedly discovered and put into show business. What I think is interesting is your dad is the youngest, correct? Yes. And that is John. Did he did did he want to follow in his brother's footsteps or was it something that he felt that he was going to do no matter who he was? No, absolutely. He, he didn't want to follow anybody's footsteps. My Aunt Julie, the oldest one, left home at 12 to join the vaudeville dance team. And she went tip tapping across the country until she may, married a sailor who was stationed in Long Beach. And when the Depression hit, my grandmother had remarried and their small baby got my grandmother, my grandfather, and the baby got in a car and drove from Delaware to California to be in Long okay. Beach. There was no room in the car for dad and uncle Bob. So at 14 and 16, they started being hobos and hoboed rode the rails across the country. And they had a marvelous time playing on the beaches of Long Beach. And dad went to, Holly, went to high school in Long Beach, Polytechnic High. And uncle Bob was just minding his own business. And Aunt Julie told them that she belonged to the Long Beach Players Guild. And there was only one man and 30 women and his chances of getting lucky and having a, a date. So he joined up right away. It had nothing to do with acting. And he was discovered and was put in the first Hopalong Cassidy picture that he was in. And my father had many interests. He, acting was not one of them. Okay. He was studying, he was studying opera and he was also a deckhand on three masted schooner. And he wanted to be with snakes and he had all kinds of interests that he wanted to do, but he was walking down sunset Boulevard and somebody stopped him and asked him if he was an actor. And he said, no. And they said, do you want to be? And he said, how much does it pay? So he was putting his first movie in 1947 in a film called the Prairie. So it, it wasn't that either brother was chasing after each other. It just sort of fell on their lap. Oh, that is very interesting. Now, how often did the two brothers actually work together in films? Because they both had very illustrious careers. I mean, they've worked with some of the big people in Hollywood way back when. But did they ever work together multiple times? Because I know of one film they did, which I found was very interesting. They worked in a few of them together. They, I think the first one that they did was One, uh, one Minute to Zero. Okay. And that's my father actually met my mother on that location. My mom was going to Colorado College in Colorado Springs, and that's where they met. And then they did uh, Lusty Men together, and they did The Way West together. They did El Dorado together, and then they did a TV movie called Jake Spanner together, where Andy Fennedy, the writer and director, actually rewrote the script to have them be play brothers for the uh -huh. one and only time. I, and and I, I, I got to see part of that the other day. And it, it it's actually, I see it more of a comedy than I do anything else. 
because you had Ernest Borgnine in it, Stella Stevens, Dick Van Patten, and your uncle and your dad in that film. I mean, Edie Adams was even in that film, which was probably one of her last ones, too. And even Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So that was a very interesting film. And I don't think I've ever seen your uncle play that type of role before. No, it was it's very iconic um, with the tribute CD that we've done. That was actually Ernest Borgnine's idea that I had to do it and bless him for coming up with that idea. Andy Fennedy, again, who wrote and directed the thing, recorded the eulogy that he gave for dad's memorial. Okay. And and explained how it came about. He he and dad had worked together for years and years and years, including Chisholm and Brando and all, all kinds of TV shows throughout the years. And he bought the rights to that particular book and it had a different title. And he said, would you please give Robert the script? And a few days later, dad called Andy and said, brother Robert would like for you to call him. So Andy called up uncle Bob and said, uh, i would like you to do this part and the title of it was the old dick so naturally uncle bob said be the old dick i am the old dick <laughs> so at that point he said okay what would you like and he said i would like to get paid and then and he said well that's fine and he said and i would like for brother john to have a part in this little epic okay so that's how that came about as andy rewrote the script and made them brothers for the first time and that must have been something special to have them working together to be able to have that relationship on screen to actually show that 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 they were brothers and able to have that dynamic there. It was it was truly a one of a kind, one of a time thing that people could see them. The only other time that there's been a glimmer of how they really reacted with each other in real life, uh, Bruce Weber has done a film called nice girls don't stay for breakfast. Okay. And it's about uncle Bob, but there's quite a few scenes and interviews with dad involved and you can see them just being brothers together. No, they were on camera, but it wasn't really like they were on camera and you can get a glimmer of, of their relationship in that film. Now, when you look back at your dad's career, he did a good bit of TV work, didn't he? He did over 800 TV episodes. And and some of the ones that he was on, he was he did um, 11 episodes of F Troop, which today, to this day, still holds up. He was in an episode of Batman playing Hot Dog Harrigan. He was in a couple of Batman. And and he, he's, he's, he's done that. Did he think TV was more of a vehicle that, to him than films, or did he just go to work and where he could get the work? Uh, Michael McGreevy, who was on Riverboat with Dad, he was the small cabin boy on Riverboat. Yes. And then was in The Way West with Dad and Uncle Bob again. He was the one who got to marry Sally Fields. And Mike told me that in the 60s especially, there were two coveted casting directors. And it was every actor's dream to become in their stable. And Mike laughed and said that Dad was in both of their stables. Oh, wow. Because 
dad had a photographic memory and he was also had a reputation of being there on time, not causing problems and knowing all of his lines. So, and he would take his teeth out so they could use them multiple ways. <laughs> but it wasn't uncommon for us to have, dad would get a call from his agent and say a messenger's coming over with a script and it'd be six, seven o'clock at night and dad would have a six o'clock call the next morning. Wow. So because of those two casting directors, they could always depend on dad if there was a rewrite or something and they had to have somebody that was a quick study that they could trust. It was always dad. So when, when I, when I look, cause I, wa I, I watched a couple episodes of Riverboat when I realized that you were going to be on with me and he was working with um, some 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 really big people in that that really weren't heard of at the time until later on. Right. It, that was well. He was with um, uh, boy. My brain just went blank. I, Burt Reynolds. Right. That Burt, it was Burt's first film, first TV show, first episodes, and Darren McGavin. Which which so, again. For a lot of people that don't know who Darren McGavin is, he played the father in Christmas Story. So to give you an idea of, of who your dad worked with. Now, the other thing that's really interesting about that is when your dad was on Riverboat, did they have to do a lot of makeup on him? And I know it was black and white, so they wouldn't have the same um, same things that we're dealing with, right? what we would deal right now with high definition. But... But did they have to go through to make make him up the way he did? Because, again, from the photos I saw, he really didn't look like himself. Well, there's two things on Riverboat. Right before they shot the first episode, Dad had a little mishap riding a trick horse. And okay. he he'd had a little bit to drink, and he thought he could jump off of it. And he broke his ankle. Ah. So he sat there at... It was a stuntman and beautiful singer. He was actually, Rusty Richards was the lead tenor in the Sons of the Pioneers. Okay. But Rusty was also a stuntman on Riverboat. And so he sat with his foot in a bucket of ice waiting for Bert to come over so dad could teach him how to sing the song. So that was kind of a funny thing. So if you notice the first, first episodes, Dad's always sitting down on a hay bale. That's because he had a huge, heavy plaster cast on his ankle. I would have so, never known that. Yeah. And the second thing is that at that point, Dad didn't have any facial hair. So they had to, to use spirit gum on that mustache. And not only did he discover he was allergic to spirit gum, uh -huh. but that darn monkey would chew at his mustache all the time. <laughs> Probably tasted so good. Bit, <laughs> From then on out, Dad always had a beard. He said okay. it was always easier to shave off a beard if the character didn't need it than to grow one quickly because he was never going to use spirit gum again. I, I can understand why. So, so again, so was um, was that program Riverboat the first time he did TV, or was that where he got? Oh his heavens, no! He went back to TV. Um, IMDB is just trying to catch up with everything that he did, but he did a lot of carryovers from, he did radio shows that carried over to TV shows. Okay. So he went way, way, way back to like Firesign Theater and things like that. 
I mean, I'm I'm looking, and he he did, um, which which I think the program's great. He did two. Did he do multiple episodes of Richard Diamond, Private Detective? Yeah. Okay. Because because like I said, he he could take his teeth out. He was more flexible than other people. And he was working. I mean, again, the, the he's working with David Jansen on these, which would have been his early career also. Who most people know him from The Fugitive. So when when you talk about your dad and you're talking about this new this new work that you're coming out, what are you trying to tell the people that are are looking into this people that are going to be listening to this program? What are you trying to tell them about your father? Well, the one thing that you mentioned about when I was growing up in the 60s, everyone always asked me if I was related to Robert right. because that, that was his heyday, the forties for film noir and things like that. And the sixties were night of the hunter and Cape fear and things of that nature. So he was always in the theater and it perplexed me as a child because dad was always on TV, but nobody ever mentioned him, mm-hmm. but being a character actor, it was hard. Even today, people now, on Facebook, it's kind of instead of where's Waldo, what's what did I see John on today? They have a great deal of fun doing that. But now that things have changed and time has gone on, people, younger people, and I mean, as you said, 40 and under, don't really know who Uncle Bob is, but they know who dad is from all the Dirty Harry pictures and outlawed Josie Wales. So it's kind of an odd twist that would have really amused dad. I mean, working with Clint Eastwood must have been must have been a a different world all into itself. Well, Dad and Clint went way way back, even before Rawhide. Clint was best friends with a, a guy named George Fargo, and if you look at any of the Dirty Harry credits, you'll see George Fargo listed in one capacity or another. But George Fargo was a dear friend of Dad and Uncle Bob's and also painted houses with Clint Eastwood before he was discovered and put on Rawhide. So their relationship went way, way back. Uh-huh. So dad dad did a number of Rawhides. One of my favorite is, is an episode where dad and Denver Pyle are related to one another, which is hilarious to me. But dad did six films with Clint, and uh, he did Paint Your Wagon. Dad was the Mormon who sold his wife to Lee Marvin. Uh-huh. And he did the three dirty Harry's and he did high plains drifter and outlaw Josie Wales with him. So they had a great deal of respect for one another. And when I, I go through, was, was your dad's favorite genre of, uh, of work Westerns or was it pretty much anything? He seemed to be uh, picked for Westerns more than anything else. But as you mentioned, he did a bewitched and he did, uh, mod squad and he did you know uh, the monsters he didn't do a lot of sci-fi other than twilight zone he did two episodes oh, of twilight okay. zone and he's he's in one of my favorite films which was bandolero with jimmy stewart and dean martin and that is one of those pictures that i don't think ever got the just do that it should have had and your dad played the uh the barber at the bathhouse yeah, I never and I never thought that movie got the 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 due that it is because it is a very good film. I think it probably was up against something else at the same time oh, I'm that, sure. that took off. 
I'm sure it was probably up against a John Wayne film at the time, most likely, but still, it's it's a good one. I had the opportunity about a year ago to interview Dean's daughter, Dina, about his career, talking about the movies and the stuff that he did. So again, this this to me is just, just coming full circle and, and being able to talk to you about the work that your dad's done and even the bonus talking about the work that your uncle's done. Yeah, and, well, Uncle Bob and... Uncle Bob and Dean were really good friends as well. Um, And being able to do some of that stuff. He also did, again, he he, he did a lot of cowboy stuff, but he also did some mob films too of that genre. Yeah. Uh, and, and, And again, it's kind of interesting to see the skill that he had. Now, do you think if he would be acting today, as the age he was when in the 1950s and 60s, do you think that he would have the same opportunities as he did then? Or do you think he would have been pigeonholed and limited to the types of roles that he'd be able to play? He would never be pigeonholed by the types of role he could play because his talent was okay. that way. It's the, the way that the industry regulations have changed within themselves. They, Dad and Uncle Bob, would not enjoy having to go through all the, the hoops and red tape. And Uncle Bob was actually went in to see a casting director much, much, much younger than he was. And the young man was sitting there and said, so what have you done lately? And Uncle Bob looked him straight in the eye and said, about what? <laughs> they, they just wouldn't have put up with all the, the rigmarole now. Right. And, and again, the, 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 the heyday when your father was in the industry with your Uncle Bob is, is you want to call the golden age of cinema, even the golden age of television, being able to do what they've done. Because then, especially TV, that is when it was creative, unlike what we're dealing with today. And a lot of things, as you mentioned, that they're watching your dad on are programs from from 40 and 50 years ago that have made it on these nostalgia channels to give to give these people a new um, a new breath of life when it comes to their acting careers. Unfortunately, they're not here to see it. True. And it's they were the 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 trailblazers, shall we say, a lot of rules have changed and have been created because of what dad's generation went through uncle bob was the first actor to ever make a million dollars in a year wow but when you look at that and and tear that statement apart he was under contract with howard hughes at rko Mm -hmm. and i believe he did 12 or 13 movies to make that million dollars at one point he was filming four different movies at the same time and hughes would helicopter him from one set to another and that, that makes a good point. When they were doing films, they were doing multiple films a year, unlike now, where a star does one a year, or one every so many years. Right. When and they, they were working, they were working. Well, yeah. I mean, especially like with the hobby films that Uncle Bob did. That was a ridiculous schedule that they had to do. But then a major epic like The Way West took three months to film. Okay. Which which seems looking at it at, at schedules today, that even seems like it was done quickly compared to today's standards. 
Well, it doesn't have all the CG effects. Well, and true. The Way West was the last great Western epic ever filmed. If you look at the cast that was in that film, it, it's mind boggling. When, when you go back and look at your childhood and your dad doing all this work, what did you see him a lot or was he always gone? No, he, I had a, a fantastic childhood, especially with him doing TV shows, because he would go to work and, and come home. You know, sometimes he'd come home late at night after I'd gone to sleep, but they mainly shot right in the San Fernando Valley or Hollywood okay. area. And when he was on a major film like The Way West or Paint Your Wagon during the summer, our whole family went with him. Oh, that would be fun. At least it sounds like it would be fun to be able to do that. Oh, it was, it was a blast. So when you were younger, were there any films or TV shows that your dad did that were your favorites? Oh, naturally, I loved F Troop. I, I don't know any kid that was growing up at that time that didn't love F Troop. Uh-huh. And Bewitched was delightful. And then Bonanza, Gunsmoke, those are fun to watch. And and the the Virginian, but at that point and to the day that he died, Jim Jury, the Virginian, was one of my dad's dearest friends. Okay. And Dan Blocker was one of dad's good friends. So you know, it. I told Jim that about six months before he passed, I said I have to admit that I knew you were famous, but I didn't know how famous. <laughs> and he laughed and said, "That's just because I was Uncle Jim in the living room." Well, and, and and again, that makes sense. It all has to do with perspective on how you see him. And I'm going through a list I have here. I didn't realize your dad did a movie with the Bowery Boys, which must have been very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he he had. I mean, he was bounced all over the place. And when he was doing one of the Clint Eastwood films, the one of the crew told me, "The world knows and loves your uncle." but the industry knows and loves your dad. Did that ever bother him that, that his brother had, the, he was the one that everybody recognized up front and your dad, like you said, was more of a character actor who just blended in no matter what he did? No, dad felt he was the blessed one because Uncle Bob was really chained. Um, I actually went on my first date with my husband because Uncle Bob called me up and some of his friends from London, who I'd already met, were coming to visit and they wanted to go to Disneyland. He said, I can't go to Disneyland. They'll take more pictures of me than Mickey Mouse. Will That's you take true. him? Yeah. So, you know, dad, people would stare at him and say, don't I know you? And dad uh -huh. would come up with some story and say, I'm your butcher. <laughs> you know? And they, dad was very instantaneous, spontaneous on the spot. He could come up with wacky stories and people would just believe him. So he, he enjoyed that. So what would be considered the last role he had in TV or on, in film? Would it be the one where he worked with, um, with his brother? I think so. Good Jake Spanner. Yeah. He did. He did a couple of other little things after that, I believe, but. When he decided to retire and move out of L.A., he really had no desire to keep going. He was doing other things. He was he wrote the book after he left L.A. Uh huh. D did he ever did he ever want to have his own TV series? Because his body of work 
would have lent very well to having his own, say, crime drama or Western or whatever it may have been. He wouldn't have turned it down, but it wasn't high on his list of boo-hoo, I didn't get it. Okay. Because he he was never bored. He always had something to do. He He wrote an album that he did with Dan Blocker called Our Land, Our Heritage. And dad, dad had a deep love for music mm-hmm. and for history. So he dove into why folk songs were written, what was going on oh. in the country and the world in that particular area. And why did that folk song survive while others written at the same time disappeared? So RCA produced the album and dad wrote the narration that Dan Blocker recited and dad sang all the folk songs with the Ken Darby choir behind him. It's a, it's a remarkable album. Do you feel because of the internet and especially this past year and a half that we've dealt with more people have found your father because they've been in situations where they have more time and now can understand and appreciate his work more than they have before. I think that they are, um, at least in the people that follow me on Facebook, like I said, now they're paying more attention. They've always noticed it. My, my best friend was watching a Cimarron city and dad was in it every shot from the opening credits to the end credits and sang and did all kinds of things with all of his friends that were in the train car and didn't get credit for it because they didn't do things like that. Then that's what I'm saying. They were the trailblazers. Now, if, if you, Put a flower on a table you get credit on a screen but dad didn't get any credit and most people don't realize that the actors have no residuals coming prior to 1964 and i was going to ask you about that because i've noticed there's a lot of stuff that your dad did that there's next to it they say uncredited so they never even got credit in the rolling titles at the end no did that bother him no, okay. no. Like I said, he he wasn't a man with an ego. He okay. just he enjoyed what he did. And he one time told me I had no idea we were doing anything remarkable. We were just making a living. <laughs> well, but, that, as long as you can make a living and you enjoyed what you do, that's all important. That's all that's important, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And well, he you know, it was that's how the John Wayne album came about. America, why I love her. Yes. He was he was filming Chisholm with Forrest Tucker, again, his old time friend and and John Wayne and Ben Johnson. And few people know that Forrest Tucker could sing beautifully and he had a nightclub act. And he came up and asked dad if he would write him a special song because he was tired of always singing Chicago, Chicago. Right. So the next day after dad and Forrest went off set, dad had come over to his hotel room and he sang him the song which Forrest just loved. And he said, what else have you been doing? And dad recited a poem that he wrote called, Why Are You Marching, Son? And he wrote it in anger after he saw the picture of the American flag being burned in Central Park. Okay. So Tucker said, get up. Dad said, where are we going? He said, we're going back on set. Dad said, "I'm. we're done. He said, no. So they went back on set and Wayne was playing chess with my cousin, Chris. And Tucker said, you got to listen to what Mitch wrote. So dad recited the poem and John Wayne started to cry. 
So Forrest Tucker said, if it means that much to you, do something about it. And Wayne stood up, shook dad's hand and said, I've never recorded anything in my life, but I want to do an album of your poetry. So. And, and the interesting thing is I've heard that. And I don't think I would have ever known that was your father who wrote it until you told me that. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that, that, that wouldn't have made the connection between. No, because a lot of people, if you go online and put in any of the titles of the poem from that album, it naturally comes up with John Wayne. Right. So we're very diligent as, as, as hard as we can be to make sure dad gets the proper credit for it. Because John Wayne once said, John Mitchum thinks like I do, but writes like I wish I could. Uh-huh. And that, that's saying a lot right there, especially that, that you have those people, which I think is really interesting to listen to you talk about them. Like I would be talking about my neighbor down the street that I've known for how long. And you're talking to these stars that I recognize their names. And it's like, that must have been really a cool life growing up with those people in your home. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. I thought, I thought I had a normal childhood and because dad was a character actor and dad loved everybody. I never knew if it would be John Wayne in my living room or if it would be a stuntman or if it, I came home one time and there's a strange little man playing our piano and he'd fall off the end of the, the keyboard and crawl underneath it, the piano bench and come back up again. And I realized later it was a piano player for Mousy Garner. So, which is going way back, but uh-huh. it, it's never knew who would be there or what they would be doing. My dad's close, close, circle of friends which terrified my my friends was a wonderful beautiful man named eddie little sky who was a a marvelous actor and another one named greg palmer who john wayne nicknamed grizzly greg was almost as big as dad so i'd have all these huge men sitting in my living room or dan blocker and and doing strange things and it just terrified my friends but that must have been been intimidating if you brought a date home or something. I mean, um, I didn't date much, oh. so yeah, um, I have some some now grown men friends that I went to junior high and high school with, and one of them still teases me about the time he got thrown into the fireplace by one of Dad's friends. <laughs> yeah, so that must be an interesting story right there. Yeah, and my poor husband. When I started dating him, thanks to Uncle Bob, I was 16 and he was 19. Uh-huh. And he went he went through a heck of a lot. between. And Herb Jeffries, the great singer who was the last sole survivor of the Duke Ellington Band and was the first black singing cowboy called the Bronze Buckaroo, uh-huh. looked, at, looked at Steve one day and said, you must really love Cindy. And he said, well, I do, but why? And he said, any boy that would date Cindy with John and Bob both alive is either in love or crazy. <laughs> That's funny. That really is. So you made the comment that residuals, they did not start re- receiving residuals until after 1964. Correct. So, so all the things that are shown on TV land and, and right. the Western channel and all of that, the actors don't get a dime for it now. So I'm look the list I have, and I'm looking at 1964, and he was the film in the film My Fair Lady. Yeah, I get residuals for that. Okay, is it a lot? 
Is it nickels and it, dimes? I mean, sometimes um, it varies, and it it's depend on how often it's played and where it's played. Okay. I mean, it's a joke between a lot of people who get residuals from way back then. I got one for sixteen cents, but yeah, obviously, like Outlaw Josie Wales is a big one for me. Of course. Um, but so it all depends and some of them you know it's like oh okay i can go out and buy a sandwich but it's <laughs> but it's it's a fact that as again they were the trailblazers they were the ones who broke through the sag contracts and made that happen and that's when they got health insurance and things like that so how long have you been basically sharing your father's work online um, well, we started, as I mentioned earlier, Ernest Borgnine and a legendary producer from Paramount, A.C. Lyles, took me aside at an event right after dad passed away. And they asked me what I was going to do to pay tribute to my dad. And I, they kind of caught me off guard. So I just said, uh, put up a website. Okay. And they shook their heads and they said, absolutely not. That's not good enough. So I looked at Ernie, which is kind of an intimidating thing when you got those two giants telling you you got to do something. And I said, okay, so what am I supposed to do? And Ernie said, I'll tell you what you're going to do, kid. Your dad's friends are each going to pick their favorite poem or song that he wrote and record it as a tribute. Wow. And he said, I'll be the first one to do it. And AC looked at me and I said, dad was nominated for a Grammy for writing the John Wayne album. So he said, the country deserves, and he shook his head and said, no, needs to hear John's poetry. Right. You can't be selfish and keep it in a drawer. So my husband and I had no idea what was going to come out of that little statement out of their, you know, what they told me to do. So Ernie held true, and he was the first one. He picked a very long piece called An American Boy Grows Up. And then Jim Jury, the Virginian, wasn't going to be outdone. So he went to the University of Houston and recorded the Pledge of Allegiance that was on the Wayne album, but also a piece nobody had ever heard called Charlie Goodnight, okay. being the good Texan that he was. And then Dean Smith, who was a stuntman, actually hired a film crew to come out to his ranch and film him reciting his poem next to his horse. So each one kept trying to outdo the next I'll one. Yeah. And... It is a patchwork of love. There's 53 tracks on this CD. Okay. Which Leonard Malton told me that there's never been a project of that magnitude that's ever been done before and there can never be again. I mean, we have people like Jane Russell and Ann Rutherford, who was in Gone with the Wind, and Ann Jeffries, who was Mrs. Topper. And we have Robert Duvall and James Drury and Marty Cove and uh, Peggy Stewart and... Roy Roger and Dale Evans' granddaughter is singing on it, and Bing Crosby's grandson singing on it. Okay. I mean, it's it's just an amazing collection of people who loved and worked a new dad that all called me to be on this tribute CD. So that took up quite a bit of time. It took yeah. seven years just to get Wilford Brimley recorded because he doesn't like to be around people. I was just so going to ask you about him. It um, wasn't that he didn't want to do it, but... He was living in New Mexico when I set him up for a recording studio and he got ticked off because somebody moved too close to him and moved to the middle of nowhere in Wyoming <laughs> before I got him into a studio that would go out to his ranch and record him on his ranch. Okay. 
So, like I said, it's a patchwork. Herb Jeffries, again, was 91 years old, and he recorded his on his kitchen table. Oh, okay. So it's, it's not a finely polished production. It's one that is truly from love, and, and it's an amazing project. So that's when I started doing things. And now that we're, that's done and we're working on putting Dad's book into a limited series, that's what we're working on now. So the, 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 the recordings, when did you start recording and when was, when was it finished? It took 20 years. Wow. Because we would think we were done with it and somebody else would want to okay. be on it. And when you have somebody of the, the caliber and the magnitude of the people that were, were contacting me, you couldn't say, oh, no, I'm sorry. The calendar's docked. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. How, how could you say no to some of these people that were willing to do this to honor your dad? And that must made you feel really good, too, because these people thought so highly of your father. It, absolutely. One of the, the tragic uh, stories is that a dear, dear friend of mine now, Jim Beaver, who has, was on Deadwood and then he was in Supernatural. And now he's just been he's part of the cast of Be Positive, a brand new series. Jim's, yes, I know he's a delight and he's a wonderful man. But he went from all, dad was living in Sonora, California, and Jim wanted to meet dad he drove all the way up to sonora from la which is about a three and a half four hour drive okay got on dad's front porch and was too shy and intimidated to knock on his door and got back in his car and drove home oh which just breaks my heart because dad would have adored jim and they would have been best friends forever but jim did jim picked a piece that's actually the longest piece on the album called ode to a mule that dad wrote for ken curtis ken asked him to write something specifically for festus to record on an album so jim did that one for me oh, that would be interesting and and is there a copy of of uh, of festus doing it because that would be interesting oh yeah yeah okay. that's you can even find that on on youtube okay it's it's called ode to a mule i'll have to look that one up I'm on the website right now called John Mitchum World, and I'm, I'm going through some photographs, and there's a picture of your dad that is autographed from the Outlaws of Josie Wales. And looking at that photograph of your dad, he looks what a rugged cowboy would look like, what we would all think one would be, that persona. And it looks like he was able to gather that, and I think anything that he did he could take that look on and make it his own. Absolutely. One of one of his character signatures is if you look, he's got that little twisted lip. Yes. And that's because when he was four years old, he was walking to the corner to mail a letter for my grandmother and holding Uncle Bob's hand, who was six. And Uncle Bob let go of him. And dad ran in the street and got hit by a car oh. and stood up and another car ran over him. Oh, so Uncle Bob ran home and, and at six years old and got my poor grandmother and said, Jack's been run over, but he ain't dead yet. <laughs> so dad has had a steel plate put in his head and okay. it, it totally shattered his jaw. So they wired his jaw shut. So that's why his lip was always turned. But that gave him another character twist. Oh, yes. So 
the people that you grew I mean, I'm, I'm looking celebrities, Ernest Borgnine, Dick Van Patten, all these names that are coming across the screen that I'm looking at at the bottom of the site. Do you still keep in touch with their families? I do with a lot of them. Okay. Um, for example, Jim Jury's son, Jim Jr., we're having a official memorial for Jim in October at the at an event called the Cowboy Way Jubilee in San Angelo, Texas. So all of Jim's fans, his his posse, and anyone else will be coming to Jim's memorial. I'm still very close with Jim's kids. And Julie Rogers, who's Royndale's granddaughter, and I are very good friends. Uh -huh. And so yeah, I and the ones that are still alive, I still keep in contact with all of them. And and as you said, the family members are the other ones I do. So before we came on together, I was talking to you and I said, I didn't realize what a famous family you came from, from your cousins to your uncle to your aunt. Did you ever, did, did the idea of being an actress ever attract you to doing something like that? Or did you not want to do that? They wanted me to do it as a small child. And okay. I was quite an oddball, not, not my parents, but like dad's agent and people that would see me. Mm -hmm. And I was a very strange child. I knew that doing something costs money. And if you blew a line, they had to redo it again. And I, I, I put it all on myself. I didn't want to be responsible for wasting money. So no, I had no desire to do anything like that. I, I actually did modeling when I got into junior high and high school. Oh, okay. But but that's that was my thing. My brother was a musician. And that's I, he told me I could sing five keys and two bars. So that singing I I missed the the dancing, acting, singing Mitchum talent. I just got the thin hair, the puffy eyes, and bad teeth. God. <laughs> So in the beginning, we you talked about your father's um, singing ability, and we just talked about what the, his writing. If he wasn't an actor, do you think he would have been a singer? Uncle Bob told him one day that he was kind of irritated with Dad, and he said, if you would just pick one thing, you would be the best at it. But you love so many things that you don't excel. I mean, you, you're at the top, but you don't, you know, reach over the the mark right and dad said i enjoy myself uh, the, the saying goes a jack of all trades a master of none but i can i can un i can understand that and again why limit yourself when you are that talented yeah and he realized you know i've been talking to several people dad will be gone 20 years in november and there's still people like at the lone pine film festival that dad was at every single year that just look at me and they get teary-eyed because they miss him so much right and dad wasn't just an entity on the screen and i i've been asking them what makes dad so special and they come back and they say he would sit and listen to us whereas a lot of people including my uncle you feel very intimidated to approach them i could see that yes your your dad it does he and not that I've ever met him before, but I've only seen photographs. He looks very approachable. Yeah, he always had a little twinkle in his eye. If he would see somebody that was sour or looked sad or 
whatever, he would just start singing around them. Okay. Or, or just strike up a conversation with them. And that's what he loved to do was to, to just make people happy. So with the website, with the CD, and with the project you're working on, is your goal just to basically make the world known who your father was so he doesn't get lost in time? That's part of it. But okay. the tribute CD started off as a tribute for dad, but it's actually turned into a tribute to everybody that's put their time and love and talent into it. So it's not just for dad. I mean, there's a lot of people on there that have sadly passed away and a lot of people that are still here but it's it's my my tribute to them for for giving me their their talent but as far as making the book into a limited series it's a it's a story that is pure americana and it covers many phases of the eras that we've gone through, as I said, from the depression through World War II and into the golden age of Hollywood and beyond. And there's lessons in the people that they knew and the, the characters that they met along the way. And I've been told that we really need to have role models like dad and uncle Bob, uh-huh. and there aren't any anymore. And they, they really need to be shown what it was like. So, Cindy, before I let you go, because this this has been a joy for me, and I really appreciate you taking time. Oh, thank um, you very to, much. To talk to me, because, again, I, there's things here that I knew of, but I've really learned a lot today. What is the one take home that you want the audience to get about your dad? Oh. And there may be he, more than one. You can, you can do as many as you have. Yeah, well, just the... One of the first questions people ask me is, was he jealous of Uncle Bob? And uh-huh. absolutely not. The two of them loved each other beyond what most people could even imagine. And they had to. They depended on each other to survive when they were kids. But that continued on until my dad died. And when Uncle Bob died, he looked at me and he started crying. And he said, I reached for the phone and he's not there. So they really were what they were and, and best friends and loved each other to the end. And dad loved this country beyond belief and was so proud of this country. And that needs to be something that needs to be remembered by everyone, right. that, especially in today's world. And, and, you know, he wrote America Why I Love Her, not on any political basis, but because of what he saw, what we could only dream of hoping to ever see when he was riding the rails. Uh-huh. He went back and forth across the country four times before he was 16. So it's about the beauty of the country, nothing political. But dad was a man who loved life and he loved to make people happy. And despite struggles, we all have. And he had his share. My mother was very sick for quite a few years, but he never wavered. He never cheated on her. He never left her. He was there until she passed away. She was she was only 46 when she passed away. Wow. So he was a man of deep integrity, loyalty, and he he and his friends, all of the people that you've been talking about, 
had a code that they lived up to, decency, honesty, and integrity. And they still carry on today with that same value. Something that we could all remember and try to do. Well, Cindy, thank you very much. It has been a total pleasure to talk to you about your dad, the, um, the, the CD, the website, and the, uh, the, the project that you're working with about the, the, I love the title, them ornery Mitchum boys, because I think that right there just wraps everything up in a nutshell. And that's a great way to explain them because just some of the stuff you sent me in a force, I haven't been able to go through all of it. Just some of the stories that you share, you can see where they were true brothers and they were ornery with each other, especially between when, when they were in their 14 and 16 years old before anybody knew who they were. Oh, yeah. Well, they, they were dubbed that title in school when they got in a fight in school and the, the bullies. Now, this is in, in Delaware and the bullies picked on both of them and Dad took a bite out of one of their armpits and Uncle Bob hit the other one with a stapler. <laughs> so that's that's when they got the nickname, the Monry Mitchum boys. And then and then th there's other thing here, too. And I have to do this real quick. In 1928, Robert was expelled from Felton High School being accused of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> never to return to formal education. He was 12. I mean, that had to be that that has there has to be one heck of a story behind that. That really does. Well, yeah, he was accused of um, defecating in Thank a you. lady's shower cap <laughs> that he had somehow gotten into the girl's locker room. So but Uncle Bob denied it to the his death but who knows <laughs> and, then, and then one other thing before i go um the, when the boy in 1930 when the boys went to live with their mother and new stepfather was the stepfather really a british spy oh absolutely really yes major hugh cunningham morris and i just found out i'm 63 years old and i just found out that my grandfather yeah, you know, my I never knew my real grand biological my grandfather that I grew up with. My cousins told me that the major, and we called him the major, not grandfather, the major okay. had a tattoo of a three-masted schooner across his chest. And he could do that thing of wiggling his arms and make the the sails fly. But he <laughs> the major had this very British ruff, 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 and he never wore his teeth. So I never really understood what he was saying to me, but I knew he loved me a lot. That, that again, uh, you, you could write just another book just on what you <laughs> shared with me right here. Because these stories and then finding the, the wild side of your dad and your uncle, boy, would that really blow the top off of Hollywood if you, if you shared that. Um, well, I, I was doing a film festival and I, was put on a panel with Cheryl Rogers, Roy and Dale's grand or daughter, and Diamond Farnsworth, who is Richard Farnsworth's son. And Diamond was the head stunt coordinator for NCIS. Okay. So, and Diamond is just an absolute love and a character. So they named the panel The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. 
So here's Miss Rogers looking prim and proper like a school marm. Uh Diamond and I are in hysterics and Diamond's like under the under the table cracking up and going, well, are you the bad or the ugly? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Cindy, thank you very much. Uh, it, it has been a pleasure and a joy. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the luck in the world. And if you ever want oh, to come thank back, you very much. And if you ever want to come back again, please let me g- know and I'll clear my schedule to have you back on again. Oh, thank you. That's such an honor. Thank you so very much. I'd love to. Uh, again, thank you very much. And you have a great day. You too. Thank you again. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cindy, thank you. Before I let you go, that was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm glad I could make your day a little brighter. <laughs> Again, these these are great stories. And and I don't think people understand. And like I said, you probably could go back and, and pull stories that your dad, your uncle and family from each decade. And you could write a book about it. And I, I would actually be hanging on it. Yeah, well, it's it's it, you know, again, I thought it was normal. Right, I got you. And then when I got, I couldn't wait to get married and and go in the real world. And boy, did I find out real people are dull. (laughs) You are right. (laughs) Well, they, you know, they, so many of them are so serious and they never laugh and they don't enjoy life. And they, you know, it's like, again, Eddie Little Sky came over one time. And he and dad would play a card game called Tonk. And dad, after my mother passed away, he met this creature when he was filming uh, one of the Dirty Harrys up in San Francisco. This horrible woman from Goldthwaite, Texas, who was a hairdresser. Okay. And she decided that my dad needed a perm. And he looked like a poodle, you know? So Eddie came over and he was a six foot eight Oglala Sioux Indian. Okay. And he's sitting there playing tonk with dad. And all of a sudden Eddie folds up his cards and stands up and dad said, Eddie, what's wrong? And Eddie says, I can't sit here and play cards with the gall darn poodle. And he left. Yeah, you you could you could make you could make a book, you could make a movie, you could do pretty much anything, and that would be interesting to look at. Well, uh, I think doing doing the miniseries, you know, we we went round and round doing a feature film, but a feature film is only two hours long, right. and with that amount of time, you could only focus on pretty much one story, and it would have to focus primarily on Uncle Bob. Oh, good, but point, yeah, but. The, there's so many beautiful people that they met. Like I, the story I sent you about Lily May. Yes. And, you know, that that kind of humanity needs to be heard. And I think that people, especially through the pandemic, being on Facebook and other social media where they're not face-to-face, they're not interacting, they've forgotten decency and they've forgotten common courtesy. And they feel safe to be mean and bitter and petty because they never have to encounter these people. So they say things that hopefully they would never say to anybody in person. Right. But it's 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 shriveled up everybody's kindness. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And so I, I think to see how people treated one another, I, I think that's a, a vital 
point in life at this point. Mm -hmm. So again, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And again, if you ever want to come back on, please let me know. Oh, thank you so much. I will. It's been fun. uh, I've enjoyed it. You have a great rest of your day. Oh, by the way, where are you at right now? I'm in Grass Valley, California. I'm halfway between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe. Okay. But in all of October, I'm going to be floating all over um, Texas. And I'm located south of the city of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. So. So again, thank you very much. You have a great rest of your day and hopefully you too together soon. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. A big thank you to Cindy Isbill for joining me this afternoon as we talked about her father, John Mitchum. If you'd like more information about John Mitchum, go to johnmitchumworld.com. Again, that's johnmitchumworld.com. And also keep a lookout for the limited series, Them Ornery Mitchum Boys. Again, it's Them Ornery Mitchum Boys. So thank you very much for Cindy for joining me. And thank you for listening today on our first episode, our first official episode of one-on-one with Bill Alexander. If you'd like to find out more information, go to the website oneononewithbill.com. Again, that's oneononewithbill.com, and it's the number one. So thank you very much for listening. I am out of here, and we'll talk to you next time on One on One with Bill Alexander. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. 